0: I am so excited to welcome back onto the podcast, Dr. Jolene Brighton. She was our episode 45 way back when we first launched the podcast. And that is such a great episode as well. So I recommend listening to that one as well, but she's a hormone expert, nutrition scientist, and thought leader in women's medicine. She is a board certified naturopathic endocrinology and trained in clinical sexology. Dr. Brighton is the author of Is This Normal? A non-judgmental guide to creating hormone balance, eliminating unwanted symptoms, and building the sexual desire you crave. She's a fierce patient advocate and completely dedicated to uncovering the root cause of hormonal imbalances, Dr. Brighton empowers women worldwide to take control of their health and their hormones through her website and social media channels. Dr. Brighton is an international speaker, clinical educator, and medical advisor within the tech community. And I'm so excited for us to dive into this interview. This is such a great interview. So get your pen and paper ready. However, I must tell you that Vivo Barefoot has some new styles available and I myself cannot wait to get my hands on some of these. So they have the Novus Mid Women's and the Novus Women's, which I'm sure they have men's styles as well. But I, of course, look at the women's and this is like your outdoor soul that's still flexible, that's still good for your foot and gives you all that barefoot style that you need. However, it has a more urban feel to it, more of the typical sneakers that you might expect. So if you've been turned away from these barefoot shoes because you think they look weird, go get these. These are so cute. I'm really excited about them. However, they also have styles that if you need more formal wear for like an office, they have a lot of flats and they're still going to provide that function of the wide toe area, not toe box, but toe area in order to have your toes mobile and have the space they need in order to properly function the flexible sole so that your feet can do the strength building themselves without relying on something else to try and do the work for you. This is truly what's going to help transform your feet and really play up the chain to your healthier knees, healthier low back, healthier you. Now, it does take time. You have to give it about six months at least. This is where we really start seeing the strength gains and the differences within your feet when you wear them consistently. So if you haven't yet, use code T-O-B. That gets you 15% off of these shoes. This is only for our podcast listeners. We really appreciate you. So go get yourself some Vivo Barefoot shoes. Use code T-O-B at checkout. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Jolene, thank you so much for being on again. We mm-hmm. had you in the very beginning of starting this podcast and that episode was incredible and now you have a new book out where you're dropping even more information on how people can really start to understand their body called is this normal and i love that title
1: yeah.
2: oh thank you i actually have to say that my agent was the one who came up with that title it's like all credit to her because i wanted to call it what the sex ed teacher didn't say um oh, and then when she was good. going through the- Yeah, I was like that's really what it should be called and then she was going through it and she's like but you just keep saying like you know people ask you is this normal and then you say this is normal and I feel like the question is is this normal and I'm like that's obvious like why why did I not think of that I'm not very good at naming things like at (laughs) all my uh, editor really good at naming the chapters like I'm like I can give you all the information just don't make me be clever about the naming of things (laughs) yeah
1: Luckily, there are people out there that can help with that. Um, But again, I feel like that's a title that can resonate with so many people because that's often the question that people have in their mind that is making them want to go to the doctor, but they just don't know. Like, is this normal? Are there some certain symptoms or things that pop out to you that you often have people asking, is this normal about?
2: Gosh, you know, the thing about is this normal is there's the things that we ask our doctor and then there's the things that we don't dare ask our doctor and that we yeah. only ask our friends. So sometimes a woman will bring the you know question of like, I think my libido is low. Like, is my libido normal? But a lot of times that's more of a conversation that they're taking anonymously to the internet or to friends or to other people. And so that's really the first section of the book is your sexual self. Things like... Mm oh, is my, are my labia normal? Is my vagina normal? Um, is my like clitoris normal? Like These are questions that once Dr. Brayton, asked Dr. Brayton on social media became anonymous that I just got flooded with these kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. the other things that women question over and over if they're normal and they're met with, yeah, sure, that's normal. Like they go to their doctor and they ask about period pain and their doctor says, oh, that's normal. Everybody has mm-hmm. painful periods which is why a lot of women with endometriosis are left to struggle like more than 10 years just trying to get a diagnosis. Or there's the symptoms like acne where they're asking, is that normal? Yes, that's just your hormones and you should just go on birth control or spironolactone or something else. And in reality, this is why women with PCOS are not getting their diagnosis. Mm. And so there's a lot of things that are very common, but they're not normal. And we're left to struggle with and often met with the narrative that this is just part of being a woman like dumb luck you have that you have ovaries like sorry you have to deal with it. And that's the section of my book on your cyclical self that I get into.
0: I mean, everything you just laid out is so, so true and I hear it all the time and it's something that I grew up with the narrative as well as, you know, oh, that's just what happens on your period and that's just, you know, oh, you're going to have acne and it's just something that's so common and we don't really know where to seek answers and what to really do. So where can someone start if they're saying, you know, well, I am experiencing a lot of these symptoms. I get so much pain every single period or I'm constantly breaking out. Like where can someone start to, to begin identifying where can this be coming from? What's the root cause? What should I be doing?
2: Yes. So as you frame all of that, that sounds really overwhelming if anybody has like this going on, right? Because that's, and that's normal. What you just did, what you just said is exactly how our mind goes. Like, like, hi, I'm a human too. And this fleshy body's had its own problems and I've done the same exact thing. And so, you know, the first place to start is tracking your symptoms, like writing down what's going on so that you can get an understanding and quantify these things. Like, is your acne every single day out of the month, or does it tend to flare or be really bad certain times of the month and other times of the month, your skin seems clear. When it comes to things like period pain, if you put on a scale of one to five or one to 10, whichever one you're more comfortable with, with like 10 being like bananas pain, like you can't get out of bed, it interferes with your activities of daily living. Like you can't go to school, you can't go to work, you're vomiting, like it's so bad. That's a 10, write that down. And so that you can start to have that data that you can bring to your doctor. I talk about all these pieces in the book, and I also give checklists. And the reason why there are so many checklists in the book, and there are a lot, is so that you know the data that doctors should be looking for and should be tracking, and you can identify that and help your doctor be more successful in diagnosing you by bringing in that data. And then, of course, I'm going to give you lots of tips in the book. Though, so depending on what you're working with, I have quizzes to help you understand your hormones and then solutions about what to do, about certain hormonal issues. And then there's an entire appendix. It's a chart called Cycle Symptom Relief, and it's the most common cycle-related symptoms that we face. And I give you the nutrition, lifestyle, and supplement protocols to help you feel your best and hopefully eliminate those for good.
1: And I think that's, I love that you have that cyclical section because I think that's where a lot of people will struggle is they hear that certain things can be common during certain you know parts of your cycle, your menstrual cycle uh, versus others. And then it's just kind of left up to the person to start to determine, well, it, is this the normal kind of cyclical symptoms I should be getting, or is it something that is a little bit beyond that? And kind of... Uh, when we just started, you mentioned something about libido, People, another topic that people don't like to talk about. And I'm sure that you cover a lot of this in your sexual self uh, section of your book. But what is, because I know libido is something that can also kind of ebb and flow uh, just with someone's menstrual cycle. How could somebody start to identify if they're having irregular drops in their libido?
2: Sir, you know that our libido can fluctuate with our cycle. Do you know how amazing you are that you that you know that? Like that is amazing.
1: <laughs> Social media most- is a great educator.
2: <laughs> I know, right? It really is. But um, I don't know if you know this, but not a lot of men. Uh, okay, that's not fair to say a lot. Uh, there is a significant number of men who don't want to hear this or don't want to read about this, um, and who make a make a lot of effort to hate. On me for this on social media because they just want to believe that women are light switches. Like, that's what they've been told is like, you turn them on and you turn them off. And like, what organism doesn't want to do like basically like the laziest thing possible? Like, every single organism on the planet. So I'm not like blaming anybody for being like, why can't it just be easy? Friend, I wish that it could just be easy, but we're complex. That's why I actually love my job. So let's talk through like the different phases. Do you guys want to go through the phase of the menstrual cycle and what happens with that would be uh, your sexual yeah, desire? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay, cool. So we'll hit it first with the period. So even though really your menstrual cycle is kicked off with ovulation, which is like all fun parts, right? Uh, it's the period that we learn it from. And the reason is, is because it's really obvious when you're on your period and less so obvious when you're ovulating. So with our period, that's when we have menstrual blood. Okay, that's obvious. But why do we have that? We have that because there's a drop in hormones. And progesterone, which we'll get to in the luteal phase, that one bottoms out. And progesterone can be a bit of a blocker in the bedroom. So with progesterone out of the way, your testosterone can stimulate the tissue, stimulate your brain, and so can estrogen. And even though estrogen drops at the end of your cycle. By day two, estrogen's making a comeback. And by day three, like it is up enough that like we'll be measuring it in lab tests. So your uterus may be doing one thing, but those ovaries and your sexual desire have a different agenda altogether. So this is a time where people are often surprised. They're like, why am I in in the mood and I'm on my period? Like, is that normal? Yes, it is normal. One being, you know, like, I just started bleeding today. The risk of pregnancy is like zero. So that psychological aspect can remove a blockage, a move, a, ble- a break, so to speak, and move, move you closer towards sexual excitement, sexual desire. There's also the fact progesterone's not around estrogen. And testosterone can stimulate the tissues. There's a lot of blood flow. I mean, obviously right, but like mm-hmm. a lot of circulation happening in that area. And so it's not an uncommon time. Now, While you may find yourself being more in the mood, and period sex is actually really great for menstrual cramps, and you don't even have to have penetrative sex. I mean, that can be a massage, but an orgasm alone will release the endorphins and the things you need to feel good. The the caveat here, though, is that contrary to popular belief, blood is not a good lubricant, and so Mm -hmm. you need lubrication. So the tissue's may not respond in the way that you wish and you're like, wait, I'm like really in the mood, but my genitals aren't having the same kind of response lubrication wise, that's normal because there's still not enough estrogen to really get those tissues flowing in terms of self-lubrication. So does that all make sense for the period aspect? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) I just said a whole lot. So I was like, I should see if there's anything that was confusing.
0: Well, actually, there is there is one question that I had because I I had someone say on my period, I noticed that sometimes I do have some discharge within or like it, it looks like almost I'm ovulating while I'm on my period. Is that something that could be possible and something that someone might need to watch out for when
2: they're on their period and having sex? Okay, so what I would think right away is that if somebody's saying I'm on my period, I would say when? Are we talking about the first few days of your period? Because that should not that should not be happening. Right. But let's say you're someone who has a six-day cycle and maybe you also ovulate on day 11, then we might start seeing c- cervical mucus starting up on that day six. Or maybe you're bleeding, bleeding, bleeding seven days. And so day six, is like we're starting to see changes. So we don't Typically see that egg for, for people who are like, "What are fertile? what's fertile cervical mucus? It's like mm-hmm. raw egg white. Like, if you ever spilt that on your counter, congratulations. you've encountered fertile cervical mucus. <laughs> Same consistency. Um, so we don't typically see that. It takes the rise in estrogen that's happening around ovulation for us to see that kind of cervical mucus. So this is where I actually love that you brought this up because we ovulate once a month you are a major, major outlier if you ovulate uh, more than once per cycle. I shouldn't have said month, but cycle. So we ovulate once a cycle. We can only get pregnant one day out of that cycle. But sperm can live five days. Mm-hmm. So this is very important because again, like let's say you are you know bleeding for five days and then spotting for two. And on day seven, you have sex and you're like, I'm on my period. I can't get pregnant. But then four or five days later, here comes an egg. Well, that sperm can be waiting around. Your uterus is a good little tender to the sperm and your uterus will keep those sperm alive. And if they live those five days and they're there, because this is what they do, they're loitering, okay? Like that's how most people are getting (laughs) pregnant. Sperm are just waiting around for that egg to like come out and then they're like, hey, hey girl, hey, I'm here. (laughs) So you can get pregnant. So I'm glad that you raise that because if you are seeing fertile cervical mucus, that is indicative that ovulation is very close on the horizon. So, if a baby is not on the agenda, let's definitely make sure that condoms are. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: It also makes me, it makes me think of kind of an old wives' tale about how to have a girl versus a boy. Yeah. Is, it, is it true <laughs> that the female <laughs> sperm lives longer?
2: So I really wish that there was like truth. I get asked this all the time of people being like, "Tell me how to have a girl. Tell yeah. me how to have a boy." I'm like, "Well, I've had back to back boys, so I don't know if I'm your person." Like, <laughs> obviously, I don't know we don't um, make we don't not make. That girls. I would like try to manipulate those things, but you know, in terms of that, you know, what some people the theory that they think is that because the X chromosome carries more DNA, it yeah. might be a heavier and take longer to get there and so if you have Mm. sex prior to ovulation that gives time for the double x to get there and then if you have sex like this you know the same day of ovulation then the xy would get there faster here's Mm. the spoiler though Uh, the egg determines who gets in Mm. the egg is actually who determines which sperm so it's something like so so what if the sperm are there what if the xx is there if it's not right the egg's not going to let it in so you might be trying timing all of these things only to end up like over and over with the same gender and it's like well the like the egg knows what what's up like the egg we got to trust wow. that process like it's been doing it for a very long time entire species whole lineage
0: That's fascinating because we hear that all the time. And like Dom's whole family only produces boys.
1: (laughs) So they keep blaming us men. It's really the egg's fault. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Well, I mean, but
2: like, here's the tricky thing, though, right? Because forever it's been like, oh, if it's infertility, it must be something wrong with the woman. Except that now we really understand. We need more understanding, but we do understand that male diet, male's health plays a big role on the quality of the sperm Mm. and on the DNA that's making it there. And so, sperm quality can contribute to an inability to conceive. Okay, yes, obvious but also increased risk of miscarriage, the health and the Mm. outcome of baby. So it's like, ah, I really like science. Can you get on it? Because I want to see it in my lifetime, like way more information exploding around this because we thought we knew a whole lot for a long time. And now we're just coming to understand, like, like we always do. It comes full circle in science of like, we really know nothing, Yeah. yeah, exactly. So going on with our cycle, where do we head then into? Perfect. I was going to ask you if you wanted to head to the latter half of the follicular phase. So the follicular phase is like this big arch umbrella, like covering the period. The period's part of the follicular phase. But once the period ends, things are changing noticeably in the body. So this is where we start to end end up into that like sexy phase. So we're moving we're moving to what is uh, some researchers have termed the sexual phase. But to get there, first estrogen has to start rising. So in this later follicular phase, we're going to see both estrogen rising we're going to see testosterone rising. We're going to see that we start, okay, like we, when it comes to arousal, the tissues can self-lubricate better. Like as we get closer to ovulation, these things get a lot easier and we still don't have progesterone around. And so to understand like how we get into that sexual phase, we have to understand ovulation. Um, when I was reading this research and they were like, women have about a six day sexual phase. I didn't have to keep, I didn't have to keep reading to know oh, like, oh, they're talking about ovulation. Like mm-hmm. I know exactly what they're talking mm-hmm. about in the cycle. But why I love this is because if you don't want to have a baby, um, so, like in terms of like learning about your cycle, I think everyone should learn about ovulation. But when we're talking about sex, if you don't want to have a baby, like even the, the thought of like ovulation and talking about it that way can kind of be like, a, it can be a turnoff. Like that can be the thing that's like, yeah, that's putting a breakup on my desire right there. So with that, uh, estrogen's going to rise. When the egg is ready, estrogen will sound off to the brain. It's going to spike. Estrogen hits the brain. The brain releases luteinizing hormone. And then about 24 to 48 hours later, that egg is going to be released and here comes progesterone. So the sexual phase is about three days before that LH spike. So Mm -hmm. that is leading up estrogens climbing, climbing, climbing. So testosterone, testosterone's like, yes, bestie, let's get like sexual fantasies going in the brain. Let's make it so that you can orgasm multiple times. Let's make it even easier to orgasm. Let's make sure that we can self-lubricate, like all of this is going, like these hormones have an agenda. So it's creeping up, up, up. Then we get the spike in estrogen. And when luteinizing hormone comes, now we're in day four. Now, if you ovulate 24 hours later, sorry, friend, your sexual phase was only five days. But if it takes a couple more days, then it's more like six. Because mm. once you ovulate, now we're going to release progesterone. The only way to progesterone in your cycle is via ovulation. And what's left behind is the corpus luteum, it's a temporary endocrine structure that's going to release progesterone. And progesterone comes in and it's lovely. It makes you feel really calm, in love with your life. Like you, you feel more cuddly with your partner at times. But progesterone is also like, you had your chance to <laughs> get pregnant. You had it. So you know what? Estrogen, testosterone, we're we're not doing that now. Now is our time to just chill out, relax, eat more, um, for sure, because <laughs> progesterone is going to cause your, um, you to be a little more insulin, uh, resistant, just a little bit, not, not in a bad way, anybody, but also increase your caloric needs as well. And so that's when uh we start to see that if, instead of that like egg white consistency right we were talking about and the ability to self-lubricate discharge starts to become tacky um like people i don't know it's funny because tacky is like the word moist and i'm finding out people don't like these words but <laughs> yes. i'm like what do you call it when your two fingers like stick together and you're like it's like glue drying <laughs> it's yeah tacky like what would you call that <laughs> That's tacky. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, it's not like tacky, like, oh, I don't like the way your shoes look with your pants. Right. Yeah. It's just the right. consistency of it. Sticky. So if you've ever like um, been a child who used Elmer's glue, or maybe you're a crafty adult and you get that on your fingers and then you know it starts to dry and it's like really sticky, that's a little bit more what the discharge can be like. And so as you can probably imagine, like that's going to lend itself to friction if you're having intercourse. And so the you know this is a time where we're going to need a lot more lubrication. Now, it doesn't mean that just because you go in your luteal phase, like suddenly like, oh, you can't have sex or like, oh, you're sexually broken in some way. It's nothing like that. What it is is that you'll often need more stimulation. You may not be the one to initiate. Now, there's so many layers to this because you might be someone who identifies as having a high sex drive and you might be somebody. So what that really means is that you're somebody who like, probably has less uh sensitive breaks we haven't even like talked about that yet but you're just somebody that um you fantasize about sex more like it's much more easier for your nervous system to interpret stimuli as sex so you look at a magazine in the grocery store okay so anybody that's like in their ovulation phase may feel this way but somebody who identifies as having a higher libido they're going to look at this like in the grocery store and like this magazine of somebody and be like, oh, oh, hello, like that, that got their brain going. So um, I just want to say there, there's exceptions to all of this. But progesterone does have the agenda of like, you know, basically, it's better to get into a pair of sweatpants than to get into their pants but you can still get into their pants. All of that can still happen. It's just important, you know, as we're talking about this, uh, like, and we have a man present to communicate that to your partner if they're not aware of it. Because otherwise they're like, one minute she's totally into me and the next minute she wants nothing to do with me. Like, what did I do? You did nothing. Progesterone just came in and said, hey, you know what sounds really good? It's just like a cuddle sesh, being really comfy. And that's like actually really good for intimacy too.
1: I'm seeing progesterone as like the true Netflix and let's just chill and get some snacks kind of hormone.
2: (laughs) Exactly, yes. No, you're you're like "Mm, Netflix and chill and progesterone's like literally, yes. Literally,
1: literally. Literally. just chill. (laughs) That's so
2: funny. (laughs) And I think what's also
0: good to bring up is after when like menopause, you no longer have your period, what happens with libido? then because i i feel like oh, yes. for a lot of people they might feel this drop off and are saying well what's wrong with me
2: yes so perimenopause might be more common time to see like a um a drop off and like these changes cuz it is more of like a hormonal chaos but what i will say about menopause um something that really aggravates me is when like society as a whole is kind of like oh the aging woman has no value and i'm like that is such a dumb narrative um especially when you consider that A woman who's gone through menopause no longer has this, this like inhibitor that I've brought up multiple times so far. And that is the fear of an unintended pregnancy that, that will throw you out of arousal out of desire. You might, you might be on like just about to have an orgasm and then you're like, oh wait, but like, what if I am somewhere around ovulation by orgasm, like gone when you no longer have that worry that frees up a lot of things. Women at that phase of life, they often know what they want. They know how to communicate it. Like they are co- more comfortable in their skin. Mm. So there's a lot of positive changes, even though society's like trying to show us one narrative and like, you know, media. It's like that's just not the reality of what a lot of women report. And then the other thing is that people are like, well, your hormones are totally gone your cyclical hormones of estrogen and progesterone are definitely problematic in terms of bottoming out, but testosterone is not gone. And so there are women who absolutely report that they have higher desire um, when they're postmenopausal, but they may not get the same tissue response. And what I mean by that is without estrogen, without estrogen plumping up those cells, to lubricate, this is a time of your life when you would need lubrication. And there is nothing wrong with that. You may even benefit from estriol, like a vaginal E3 or a vaginal DHEA or even vaginal vitamin E. The things like this can help with vaginal dryness. Uh, but what I will say is that there's a lot of stigma around lube, but as I just explained through our cycle, like we all need lube at some point. Mm-hmm. If you are sexually active, like at some point you need lube and there's absolutely no shame. In the book, I actually say a lube-free bedroom was where good sex goes to die. Like, it absolutely <laughs> is. So I see a lot of men telling on themselves on the internet where they'll say things like, you know, if you have to use lube, she's not the one. And I'm like, oh. well, clearly you're not the one because you do not understand how her body works. <laughs> Or, oh my gosh. how much
0: better sex is with lubrication? That's crazy if they're really saying that. And again, not understanding the female body at uh, all. Yeah. And
1: I think <laughs> to your point of where you, you know, you like gave me a kudos for knowing that um, someone's libido can go up and down throughout their cycle. I, I just feel like this is something that is just becoming more and more common the more yeah. that we're talking about women's health, pelvic health, hormonal health, all these things is for the man in a relationship to educate themselves on these things and that it is so beneficial for many reasons for your sex life your intimate life for what you eat on a regular basis i i think it can be so important for men to educate themselves on this kind of stuff
2: (laughs) and i think they want to like this is something that um you know, I really struggle with like, because like there are definitely like men being awful and misbehaving um, in terms of like just popping off on the internet. It's like, sir, where's your mother? She needs to like take you home because <laughs> this is not how we act. They exist. However, I am de- very much from my interactions under the belief that men really do want in on this information. Mm-hmm. I talk about in the book about how Men are always like, there's all these jokes about how men can't find the clitoris. I don't think that they want to be joked about like that. I don't (laughs) think that they, I don't think men are interested in having sex only for self pleasure. Well, there are men who exist that way. There are also women who also exist that way. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to stand back and recognize that we've done a really big disservice in this country, in the way that we teach our sex education, in the way that we shame people about talking about these topics, and even like the way that we shame men for being curious about these topics and for wanting to build something deeper, like a deeper kind of intimacy and pleasure and have, you know, the full scope of a relationship. I mean, especially when they're cohabitating with women. So I think it's just something that is really unfortunate. I'm hoping that my book gets in the hands of a lot of men because um, it's it really was never their choice not to be taught about women's bodies. It was mm. never their choice to be kept in the dark about all of these things. They, I mean, even now, there's so many places where sex ed is like, we separate the boys from the girls and the boy, I mean, oh my God, what about like Florida? They're about to pass a bill where girls can't even talk about their periods in school, like so sad, like have they even considered the impact to those children to like these you know people that are getting their periods and to the male counterparts who yeah. are going to be their partners later in life, yeah, it's yeah.
0: so true, just it and it's about education, not about shaming or you know trying to whatever they they make up in their minds, it's really just starting to understand the body in a whole better way so that we can all continue to grow together. And I think that's what's so important here. And I do want to touch on a couple more topics. I mean, there's so much that I can ask you about. So obviously your book is going to go into a lot more and actually highlight and get to the root cause of things. But on this topic of of sex, can we talk about fertility? Because... I think a lot of what happens with women, it's like, oh, well, you're older and oh, well, you know, your eggs are going bad. And does like how does that happen? And are there
2: things that we can do that really support our fertility? You know, I just laugh when you say like your eggs are going bad Um, because so um, I have a very straight shooter um, maternal fetal medicine specialist who I absolutely love and adore. And I really like direct talk, it just passive, aggressive, ambiguous, like all of that gets lost on me. And I'm like, what are we even talking about? And um, she, so I had a miscarriage last year. So everybody listening, I had a baby at 40. Um, Unfortunately, my entire being decided that like, oh, this is like the time of my life where I want more kids other than the one that I have. And like in your 40s, your fertility is definitely uh, declining much more rapidly. Um, And so last year I was 41, I had a miscarriage. And she said to me like, listen, you're older. It's like, you got a carton of eggs and some of them are rotten, but don't worry. Some of them are still good too. So you have to just keep trying for like that good one. And I was like, rotten eggs. (laughs) like Wow. um, And it's really like kind of the analogy that gets that I think. So anybody, please don't comment like anything bad about her. We have a different kind of relationship. um, That that kind of bedside manner is like what, I mean I just need somebody like tell me like it is and let's just like keep moving and also like humor does help me. So um when talking about fertility we're all told that like oh age 35 and you're done but your fertility doesn't just drop off a cliff. It's not like nose diving right off a cliff at like just because you're 35. But also recognize that you can be younger than 35 and struggle because there are genetic factors, there are environmental factors, there's the way that we lived our life before our brain was fully formed. I say that because before 25, the nervous system is not really at a place where executive function is at its best. And I made a lot of bad decisions. (laughs) So I probably would venture to guess that like a lot of people listening did too. And there's no point in judging ourselves for uh, the things that like we could have never, like there's just no way that we could have known better um, in all of this. So with that, yes, we're told that like it drops off. It doesn't actually drop off. There are a lot of things we can do. We can definitely talk about that. But I do want to say that like starting at age 40, things do start declining in terms of egg quality, your ability to become pregnant, but also your ability to maintain a pregnancy and have um, healthier outcomes. Is it possible? 100% because if you are healthy and you are caring for your body in a way that already lowers metabolic risk, lowers high blood pressure risk, lowers heart disease, you're also going to be at a you know better place in terms of not getting preeclampsia, not getting gestational diabetes. And so all of this is to say like taking care of yourself now uh, for your future self, you will never, ever regret that. So when it comes to, you know, we're going to talk about a heterosexual couple. Um, The reason why I'm going to talk about it that way is because we just know there needs to be an egg and a sperm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the biggest challenge that I see people face is getting their partner on board. So I do want to talk about it from that perspective. But I want anybody listening to understand that. Um, what what we're going to talk about, like you might just be like, yeah, no, like I want to be a single mom. I support that. Okay. Like, but I just want you to understand that, um, there are things that matter when it comes to sperm quality and egg quality. And the good news is, is the exact same diet that supports fertility in women supports fertility in men and mm. I love that because I love a low maintenance like food, uh, food household like food yeah, uh, exactly. meal prep and all of it right um, that whenever people are like, oh so I have to make this food just for me I'm like, no you make this food for everyone and if they're hungry they'll eat yeah. like that will be that will be what happens because no because stress is bad for everything and, and well you don't need me to harp on that we know this so let's lower stress both couples have to be on board all um, alcohol has to go smoking has to go smoking what smoking anything okay (laughs) smoking anything anything that is combustible that is going to add to free radicals free radicals love to rip apart cells. And my goodness, do they just love to mess with mitochondrial-rich tissues, which is like the ovaries. Uh, Also your brain and heart. So if you're like, I don't care about fertility, care about your brain and heart. Mm -hmm. And everything I'm talking about here that takes care of fertility, it's also really good for your brain and your heart. So yay, like you're winning no matter what if you keep listening. So we want to be eating a nutrient dense diet. Lots of plants, high quality proteins. If you can bring in organ meats, that's even better. I mean, they're some of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. Somebody's going to come in the comments and be like, you're yuck. And you know what? Like, I'm with you. I think it's yuck, and then I suck it up and eat them anyway. <laughs> um, and also, like, don't tell the French or, like, you know, my like, I think about my family eating menudo. and I'm like, yeah, don't tell them. Uh, yeah. So the manudo, I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it tends to be like a, a U.S. thing, right, where people are like, oh, or you yes. that's so gross. Yeah. And then there's all these other cultures that are like, oh man, like my kid. I'm just going to tell you real quick, lingua, oh my God, does he go crazy mm. for lingua tacos? And oh my God, I'm like, you're, you're amazing. He's 10. I don't say anything, but inside I'm like, I am so grossed out because my <laughs> 10-year-old self was being served that. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> That's no. That's hilarious. So anyhow, <laughs> so, just for anyone who gets squeamish when I say that. <laughs> so other things that can help, definitely cold water fish, bringing in those omega-3 fatty acids, foods that are rich in zinc things that are rich in uh, selenium and iodine. So fish is definitely one of the best sources of that. So we want to look at building that nutrient density. I actually have articles on this at drbrighton.com, I have YouTube videos about my own fertility journey and like supplements my husband was taking and supplements that I was taking. Um, But the nutrient-dense diet and then getting the rest of the lifestyle stuff in order is really important. I would say, you know, working on the stress, but also working on the stress of relationship compatibility. I don't really hear many people talking about the fact that like getting the journey of getting pregnant it's not as always easy as you think it's going to be. It can put stress on the relationship. But any, anything that you've been like, this really bothers me, but I can handle it. You will not likely be able to handle it once there's a baby, okay? okay? So it's a good idea to work on all of that as well. Like the relationship factors really matter. And then taking a look at environmental toxins. This is something that we are seeing. It's really scary. There's a great podcast actually called Baby or Bust. Mm. Uh, by Dr. Laura Shaheen. I'm going to introduce you to her because you should definitely have yeah, her as would a guest. I love her. That'd be she great. Um, brought in the researchers um, behind the studies showing us that male fertility is that's what's dropping mm. off a cliff, okay? Not like age 35. No, male fertility is like seriously dropping. And male sperm uh, today is about 50%. That's about what men have is about 50% of what their grandfathers had. Oh my gosh. And there there's a lot of talk about endocrine disruptors. And I think Dr. Laura Shaheen is definitely somebody that I refer to. She is a reproductive endocrinologist. And back, I mean, back when I was talking about endocrine disruptors and people were like, oh, you're just a quack. And like, it's, you're fear-mongering people. Like she was there saying it as well because of what she sees in in fertility cases. And I'm like, if this isn't the way it always is in medicine is like, well, it's not like really reflect, like affecting, like, you know, we're not seeing like, you know, these big impacts in these ways. It's just women. It's just women. Right. And then these studies started coming out about men and they're like, oh, maybe we should listen to that. Like, hold up. Like what? There's something to that. There's a whole lot of something to that. So um, what am I talking about with endocrine disruptors? These are chemicals that come in, they can stimulate your cells and cause DNA changes in similar ways. Like, Estrogen can they can alter testosterone production and utilization. Um, things like flame retardants, we need a lot more research, but there is there are animal studies showing that they potentially increase free radical damage within the ovaries, and they may inhibit your ability to make optimal amounts of hormones. Like when you think about flame retardants these are the things that we're sleeping on for eight or more hours. (laughs) We're having sex on um, because beds and couches also apply here. There's pet beds that have this. There's children's um, pajamas that have this. And then we've got all the plastics. And this is one where it's like, we now know that we cannot escape the microplastics and the issues that we have in our water supply. But what we can do is we can reduce our exposure by drinking out of Glass, not buying more one use, like single use plastic, not reheating our foods in plastic, Um, you know, getting Costco to do something different about their receipt issue. Like every time I shop at Costco, I'm like holding it with like my skirt, like here it is. And they're like, what are you doing, weirdo? And I'm like, oh, looking at these poor people working at the door that are touching these receipts over and over. And I'm like, your BPA exposure is so Mm -hmm. much higher than mine. Because of the job that you're working, and that is not even being considered an occupational hazard, when in fact it absolutely is.
0: Mm-hmm. That's huge, and I think beginning to to open this door of which can feel overwhelming, right? To say, "Well, what am I putting in in on my skin and in my hair and and around my house, and what am I cooking on?" and you know, it can feel really overwhelming. But I like you know, I actually got to have you on yesterday as well. And I like that you said, rather than thinking, let me overhaul everything. The next time I need to replace something, can I replace it with something better? And can I get a little bit smarter about what I'm adding back into my life? And I love that you said that because it it takes away that overwhelm of thinking of every little thing (laughs) that we can do, different it's
2: a lot yeah and it's expensive yes like okay so pink tax is real uh don't come and fight me on this because it's actually well documented whether or not you want to believe it like we pay way more for our products and so if you just tell someone like oh you need to like replace all your makeup all of your shampoos conditioners lotions like all of that it's like that adds up so quick. And so not only is it financially overwhelming, but it's mentally overwhelming. And when you get overwhelmed, you usually make no decision, which is continuing doing the same thing over and over. Even And then you're living with this like cognitive dissonance of like, you know that you shouldn't and yet you are. And so now that is also really bad for your health. So instead of doing that, absolutely, look at what you can replace. And recognize that like you know like right now the stanley cups are like so like when people are like oh these are like the best things ever i was like people are like trying to get the hockey cup like i don't understand this <laughs> <played> Stanley Cup. <laughs> um but those cups like i i um i ended up getting one like that was on clearance on amazon apparently nobody wanted it but i was like you know it fits in a cup holder this is a win but when i looked at the regular price i was like man just drink out of a mason jar. (laughs) Just drink out of a mason jar. And that's like literally what I do is that like when I don't want to make fresh pasta sauce, I like buy pasta sauce at the store as we all do. And I just reuse that jar. Um, And then I just got taught um, that you can actually, the peanut butter jar lids, go on those jars my life has been like forever changed are those plastic yes but you're not drinking out of them and they're not staying in contact with your food um so there's just like also economical ways like yes stainless steel is great but so is glass and nobody cries when the you know pasta jar gets broken in their kitchen they're like oh like that happened opposed to like the super fancy iced coffee like glasses that like exist out there which are super cute but also like it doesn't like it doesn't have to be like this big financial burden and nor should it be. You know another area that I think you know needs to be talked about is food as well. Yes. Trying to purchase organic as often as possible is important. It's not only important for you but it's important for the farm workers, for the people who are getting exposed to this. Like the people Who are we know like in the Central Valley of California where they have high pesticide exposure like we see higher rates of certain cancers like thyroid cancer Mm. and we are not talking about that like it's like people are like organic isn't more nutritious nobody ever said it was like that's not what we're talking about we're talking about chemical exposure like things that are known to have reproductive harm and to be cancer causing. And yet you're acting like, oh, well, don't worry about it. Like this is just the wellness industry telling you, you have to do one more thing. And I'm like, nice way to like, not care about like our overall ecosystem, let alone the people who are actually farming your food and bringing it to you. Like the whole reason that you have food is because somebody had to work in a field to do that. So It's to me, yes, they're going to have, there still are chemicals involved in organic produce, Mm -hmm. but the exposure to things that we know are really, really harmful is going to be less. But not everybody's going to have access to that. And it can sometimes be more expensive. I mean, back. 20 years ago, organic was hard to find and it was super expensive. And you know what happened is everybody started dollar voting. Everybody started buying it and we started seeing the prices come down. We saw it get more accessible. And that's the power and the potential we have because I just really think it's BS that there is some socioeconomical divide in who can reduce their endocrine disruptors and who cannot. Um, When you look at food, when you look at things like what is targeted to the BIPOC community in terms of like as as a Latina with curly hair, like the products that are marketed towards us, yeah. they're not great. Actually, I would just say they're, they're mostly garbage. They're really harmful yeah. and really problematic. And so I just don't think these divides should happen. I think it should be an even playing field where having, having access to things that do the least harm should be universal. That's mm. what it. That's what we would love to see.
1: Seriously, all head nods and slaps and claps over here because you just touched on so many important things all the way from the endocrine disruptors to nutrition to helping level the playing field. And I think you said one really important thing that is difficult sometimes, but is voting with your dollar and not doing what's the easiest thing to do, but doing what you know is the right thing to do and starting to support those businesses that are doing the harder thing, producing things in a different way that might be slightly more expensive. But if enough people start to migrate in that direction, um, things are going to shift on a more systemic level. And I think the work that you are doing is incredible. Again, you mentioned probably four or five different things that we could probably talk for another hour and a half about. But that's why I think people should go check out your book. Is this normal? We'll have that linked up in our show notes. But can you tell everybody who might be listening, Uh, where they can learn more about you, learn from you, and get the book
2: drbrayton.com is my main hub drbrighton.com you can also find me at Joel, uh, no at drjolinebrayton <laughs> on uh, TikTok Instagram and YouTube and then you can buy is this normal anywhere that they sell books and when you do definitely check out the URL that's inside because i have created an entire digital cookbook to accompany the mm. book and so in the book, you'll find it that URL is mentioned multiple times with resources to help guide you on having your most optimal hormones.
0: I think this is, I'm just so excited for this book because it's not just education. It's not just knowledge, but it's here are the tools. Here's what you can do. Here's how you can examine yourself. Here's how you can get to the root cause. And this is what's missing a lot, whether you're going to the doctor, trying to get lab tests done, trying to understand your body. So I love that you're bringing this. Again, so much information, Where whatever platform that you're learning from Dr. Jolene on. So definitely go follow her, go check her out and go get her book and, and start to learn about your body. Jolene, thank you so, so much for always being willing to just bring the education and the knowledge in such an incredible way you're you're really doing a lot for i mean everyone not just women's health you're you're helping to support to- people. So we just really appreciate you.
2: Well, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. I feel like this is so special. I got to spend like two days in a row with you. I know, um, <laughs> So awesome. And thank you for all the work that you do. Like I am always sending and sharing your videos with like everyone if not doing them myself and Yay. being like, oh, remind her, like get off your phone and go move your body or anytime <laughs> my husband's like, oh, this is bothering me. I'm like, here you go. Here's the video. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that
1: it truly is always a masterclass in everything hormone health whenever we get a chance to talk with dr jolene brighton so hope you enjoyed that episode if you want to get your hands on her book check that out down in the show notes and if you want to support our podcast further please consider leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform and of course we will see you next time on the optimal body podcast